0: Let me just remind you what's happened so far in the chapter, uh, in chapter 3. We had the famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus tells Nicodemus the son of man must be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then last week we got to see the conversation between John the Baptist and Jesus, where John the Baptist exalted Jesus. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. And today we come upon the words of John, and he says this in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, right now we together come under your word. We know that you alone, Jesus, have the words of eternal life, so where else would we go but to you? And we've already seen you to be better than we thought you were through the gospel of John so far. And today, we once again get to just behold you in your glory. And so we ask, I ask for the grace to be able to see you as you truly are. And the grace to respond to you as you deserve and as we must. Jesus, I thank you that uh, you didn't come into the world to condemn the world but to save it. Thank you that there is life in your name. Thank you that you love us enough to have come into this world, to have died and risen from the dead. And So Lord, now I just ask that we all would find the deepest joy in knowing your approval, the deepest joy in knowing your acceptance, that you would rule over our whole lives, over our hearts, do whatever you want with us, Lord. We know you are good and wise. Have your way in our lives, for you are our Lord and our Savior. Praise pray this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The famous evangelist of the late 1700s, George Whitefield, uh, was a larger-than-life personality. He was an open-air preacher who would uh, go to cities and draw a great crowd and just preach the gospel outside in the open air. Uh, he was such a personality at the time, George Whitfield would often go to hear him preach. And George Whitfield at one point, did all his calculations to figure out how many people could hear uh, George Whitfield while he was preaching. The number would be in the thousands. He could bellow his voice a larger-than-life personality. But the story that stuck with me most about George Whitfield is what he would often say as he approached to speak to men and women. And this larger-than-life personality would just stare into the eyes of the people in front of him and say, I want to talk to you today about your soul. Penetrating past antics, past theatrics. He was an earnest man, an evangelist who wanted to talk to people about their souls. And that's what I want us to do today as we sit under God's word. As we hear these closing verses of John chapter three, I want us to talk About our souls. John himself made explicit what his aim is for us through the writing of his gospel. What was was John aiming to do in the writing of his gospel? He tells us in John chapter 20, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is John the Apostle's singular aim. It's his all consuming focus, his passion that you would hear about Jesus. And so believe Him for all of who He is the Christ, the Son of God, that you would see He is the answer to your deepest problems. He is the one for whom you have longed even if it was after a name you didn't know. And so that by believing in His person, who He is and His work, you may have true life. In church, I just want to remind us, Jesus Christ is everything to us. It's not about any other name than his. He alone is worthy. He alone is worth going through the trials of this life. He's the reason we gather. And so if we lose everything, our building, our sound system, our coffee, our homes, our jobs, and yet still have him, we are rich. And if if we gain the whole world, and the building, this building's given to us, and it's stacked every square inch up to the ceiling with gold bricks, we would be the poorest of the poor if we had all of that but lost him. He is everything to us. And so John closes chapter 3 Wrapping together this masterful chapter, declaring who Christ is with the aim that we would believe in him and so have true life in his name. Now you may notice that the quotation marks that were around verse 30 in John the Baptist's speech disappear when we come to verse 31. There isn't a quotation mark at the beginning of verse 31. And that's because it's not entirely clear if this is the continuation of John the Baptist's speech or if it's commentary from John the Evangelist, closing out the chapter, wrapping things up. Most scholars seem to suggest that it's, they believe it's John the Evangelist commenting on all we've heard and seen so far. And I think that's a good suggestion. Uh, if you ask me, my opinion, I'd say John wrote it. Um, That's a joke. They're both named John. Uh, What's clearest to me though in this, what's clearest to me in this, more than anything else, is that the conversations that Jesus had with Nicodemus and the great speech of John the Baptist, as we read verses 31 through 36, as we go through these six verses, by the end of it, the characters, those characters have kind of faded away and we're just left with Christ before our eyes. Suddenly it doesn't really matter who's speaking. We have Holy Scripture and Christ is the sole focus before us. We're left to behold him alone. So if you this morning, um, maybe you came in here and you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus Christ. This is the perfect sermon for you to hear the truth of who he is and who he claims to be. If you are a Christian on the way, but struggling, it's here that you will find fresh strength and courage as you look upon your God again. Whoever you are, this is for you. Now, here's how we're going to walk through these verses. There's one call this morning. One action point, and it's this, believe on Christ. And six reasons that we must believe on Christ, because of his compelling character, because of what he has done. Believe on Christ, because first, he is above all. Verse 31 He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. As we saw and learned last week, we must humble ourselves before Christ. We truly must decrease and he must increase. And verse 31 is helping us see why this is, that we must decrease. And it is because Christ is above all. He came from heaven. And so to humble ourselves is to view ourselves rightly before him, not to compare ourselves to others, but to compare ourselves only to Christ and so humble ourselves before the one who is above all. Christ in his origin is without a beginning. In his positioning, Christ is supreme in all his ways. In his wisdom, his is infinitely greater than ours. In his claims of who he says to be, he is more than one option among many. As one commentator, Frederick Dale Bruner, wonderfully captures it, Christ comes straight from the heart of God we come straight from the local hospital or home because this is carpinteria. I was a home birth. He speaks the very word of God. We speak our all-too-earthly language. Christ is from heaven. We're all from the dust. Christ lives now and reigns forever seated in heaven. We, if he decides to delay, we'll all need to pick out a plot of land to be buried in. And so let me ask you, in view of who Christ is, that he is above all, does Christ and the truth that he is above all, does he and does that truth rule your heart? Is his love and his approval enough for you? Or are you striving after the approval of another? I just want to warn you as one who really went after it, Christ's love and approval is so much better and no one else's will ever satisfy. Can you sleep well at night knowing you're right with him? Even though everything else is falling apart around you, And I'm not saying there's not gonna be some sleepless nights, some tossing and turning, but is there a deep soul level peace and rest in your soul because you know all these other things are happening, but I am right with my God. He is mine and I am his. Have you heard and understood the words of Christ or have you heard only earthly wisdom? Christ is above all, so we must believe on him. And when he speaks, we must listen. Believe on Christ because secondly, he can speak authoritatively about the things of heaven because he's been there. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, surely here John is speaking in a bit of hyperbole. No one receives his testimony, John? We just saw John the Baptist apparently receive his testimony, and he's going to speak in the next verse, whoever receives him. So what's going on here? Well, these verses call to mind some really similar words John spoke in chapter 1 of his gospel, where he said this. He, that is Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. He's here telling us no one naturally just receives Christ. It's a work of the Spirit. And he's saying the world as a whole, the world as a system, has not received Christ, the testimony of Christ. And it's still the same today, is it not? The world wants to edit the testimony of Christ. They don't receive it as it is, but the world wants a Christ with a more modern view of gender and sexuality. A Christ who doesn't say salvation is found only in repenting and trusting in him. A Christ who would never ask us to take up our crosses and follow him, but who wants to help us fulfill the dreams we have. The world wants to edit the testimony of Christ. And the gospel the world would be willing to accept is something like this, that A scholar named Richard Niebuhr uh, summarized as he looked at the kind of gospel that the world would be willing to accept. That a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That testimony is acceptable But we need to ask ourselves, examine that very concept of testimony. We're familiar with that. And ask yourself, can a prosecutor in a court of law thank a witness for giving their testimony and afterwards tell the jurors, now I want to amend exactly what they said. Kind of take that out, add some of this. No, we all know that you either accept the testimony from a person or you don't. But it's not ours to edit. We need to ex- choose to accept or de- deny a testimony. And we also need to recognize that it's not just the world out there who struggles with the testimony of Christ. But it's us in here. Like, how do we respond to our loved ones when they tell us, "It's great that we have a relationship with Christ," and they don't want to discourage us, but it's just not for them. So they're happy for us. How do, how do we respond? When they say there's many ways to God that each person needs to figure out what works for them, How do we respond when it's actually close to our heart? When it hurts and it's painful? Do we accept the testimony of Christ? Well, I want to remind us that if we do have heard if we have heard the testimony of Christ and do accept it, part of his testimony is this from John 15. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. Because you have been with me from the beginning. Part of accepting the testimony of Christ is accepting that we are now witnesses to that testimony. That we're meant to bear witness to the uniqueness of Jesus, to tell others that it's Christ alone who came from heaven. It's Christ alone who has returned to heaven. That no one has legitimate testimony about the things of God apart from Christ. And so it's going to take wisdom. As those who have not accepted his testimony, how do we we be faithful witnesses? For some of us, it means the second we hear something that doesn't line up with what we believe, we're tempted to make distance with the other person. I just won't have a close relationship. I just won't broach the important topics ever. We can be on okay terms as long as we don't have to talk about those things. No, it means that we stay in the relationship, that we love them. We love them enough to be willing to speak. For others of us, it means, uh, it means there's, there comes times that we have to lift up our voices and tell them about the uniqueness of Christ and who he is. Because Christ saved us by grace, we have to be humble. We have no choice but to be humble as we talk about the things of God, right? Our testimony is God showed me undeserved kindness as I was a rebel against him and deserved his wrath, and he just decided to show me mercy. So how can we go at other people in a proud manner? but we also recognize that it's God who saved us. God. So we can be sure of what we have heard and what we know, that he is the one, that we know him whom we have believed. And so even with shaking hands and quivering lips, we can say, I absolutely know the way of salvation and it's Christ, even as we tremble doing that. Guys, the good news is that Christ is after something better than letting us just create him in our own image. He wants to give us something better. He wants to give us God himself as he truly is. We need to ask what exactly is this testimony? What exactly is this testimony? Well, his testimony is God's testimony. And so we believe on Christ because his testimony is God's testimony. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. This is to say that what you do with Jesus is what you do with God. Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. There's no, there's not any sort of salvation or wisdom or access to God outside of Jesus Christ. He who sets his seal to this. Now, what's that talking about? What is it to set a seal to something? Well, if you've been reading the Bible reading plan that we've been doing, or you're familiar with the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph, we just encountered it recently in Genesis 41 where after Joseph uh, had been put in prison and been in a pit and accused falsely of all these things, he was able by the spirit of God to interpret Pharaoh's dream, to tell Pharaoh that he had a prophetic dream that there was going to be seven years of plentiful harvest and then seven years of a famine. And after Joseph interpreted this correctly, Pharaoh said, I need to put someone in charge. Who should I put in charge? And Joseph just had wisdom for what to do. And so Pharaoh picked him and said, Joseph, you're my secondhand man. You're only behind me in terms of the kingdom of Egypt. And he gave him a signet ring, a ring that would have a unique symbol on it so that when Joseph passed a decree, he would stamp his signet ring on that. And that was a sign of approval and acceptance. It said that all things were given into the hand of Joseph. Which is also what we're going to see is said of Christ from the father. All things were given to Joseph from his master. And so whatever Joseph sets the ring to, Pharaoh approves of and accepts. It is his own sovereign decree going out. So I want to ask you, where have you set your seal? Where have you said, I accept all of what it is? I approve of all that it is. What does it mean to set your seal to the testimony of Christ? Well, it means to believe, to receive the testimony of that he came to save sinners. Christ didn't come into the world to make moral people more righteous. He came to save people who couldn't save themselves. It means to believe that he alone has the power to forgive sins. That he is God, that he is the son of God that no one comes to the Father except through him. And it's to treasure him for all he is revealed to be in the scriptures. It's been said, the Bible's been uh, divided up into the, this way of explaining that Christ is in all the scripture. That the Old Testament is Christ's anticipation. That the gospels are Christ's manifestation. That the epistles are Christ explained for us, and that revelation is Christ's consummation. It's to receive him for all he is in the Bible. To accept Christ's testimony is to accept God. And to reject Christ's testimony is to reject God himself. To quote C.S. Lewis, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. But is that not the stream we are swimming against constantly in this life? People want to say Christ is moderately important. He can make your life quite a bit better. He's a great crutch if you need it. But brothers and sisters, we need to see together either Christ is God and that changes everything or he's a liar and we shouldn't take anything he says seriously. But The one thing we can't do with the testimony of Christ The one thing his testimony doesn't allow us to do is say that's great for some people, but not for others. It's either of no importance or of infinite importance. Jesus raises the stakes and the claims to the highest possible level. Fourthly, believe on Christ. Because he utters only the words of God, because he has the Spirit without measure. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now throughout the Old Testament, a prophet of God would receive a portion of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God now one particularly astounding uh, story from the Old Testament is when Elisha requests to receive a double portion of what his rabbi Elijah got. It was like the best uh, three wishes you have for a genie move ever. He's like, I want double what everyone's had before. And so he received that. And throughout the Old Testament, it was the spirit of God that led men and women to be able to speak God's word, to write holy scripture. To be empowered to do miracles and prophesy what was yet to come, and here we're told that Jesus utters the words of God. How and why is John the Baptist telling us this? Is he unique? Or John the Evangelist telling us this? Is he unique in some way? Well, John tells us, as he says in his uh, in verse thirty four. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, I've heard this verse before, and I thought, I always thought it was talking about God giving us believers the Spirit without measure. But as we read the scripture in context, we realize it's the Father who gives the Spirit to Christ without measure. This is the reason whenever Jesus speaks, he's uttering the words of God. Do you see it there? Uh, Let's go through the logic of the sentence. He whom God has sent, who is Christ, utters the words of God. For, because, he. Now, it does not define the he there, so we need to understand from context and the logic of the surrounding verses what it's talking about. For he... Is this saying Jesus gives the Spirit without measure to us? If so, why is that the reason that he utters the words of God? And in the next verse, it's going to say the Father loved the Son. It appears what's going on here is the relationship between the Father and the Son and how the Spirit plays into all of it. He gives the Spirit without measure. And the King James, notably, actually added the words unto him to, for help of clarifying what exactly is going on here. He speaks the words of God, for he has the spirit without measure. Or as it says in the book of Colossians, because in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. As Matthew Henry says, So eloquently put it, the spirit was not in Christ as in a vessel, but as in a fountain, as in a bottomless ocean. Have you ever ever been in a room and you open your mouth to say something and afterwards you see a look on people's faces and you can tell they're astounded by what you just said. And you realize, wow, I just actually said something profound. Now, a lot of us have had maybe a few of those moments in our life, right, that we can pinpoint. Some of us have, think we have more than we actually have. Um, probably like myself, which is why I need to listen to last week's sermon again. Uh, but Christ, Christ always spoke the wisdom of God. It's astounding. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? I would think I would get annoyed by it. But then two of his brothers became followers of him. Having grown up with him, he spoke the words of God. Now, God does fill us believers again and again with his Holy Spirit. But to us, as Ephesians 4, 7 says, grace has been given as Christ apportioned to it. Christ apportioned the grace. That means we, we know this. We don't possess every gift of the Spirit, but Christ does. We must be filled again and again, but Christ possessed the Spirit without measure. And so here, we must marvel At the God man. He is more than a prophet. He is more than just a spirit empowered human. He is the Word made flesh. As we begin to be drawn into this beautiful mystery, verse 34 pulls us into the undertow, the current that's beneath the surface of the essence itself for all that is good and true and beautiful in the universe. That is to say, we must believe on Christ because his relationship with the Father is the fountain and foundation of God's love for us. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. It is as if everything else in this verse starts, that's come before starts to blur in this altogether sublime thought. That word sublime means exceedingly good, not just the name of a band. Uh, it becomes clear for John, the father Loves the Son. Martin Luther commenting on this verse says, the evangelist speaks about this subject just as if he did not consider any other subject worthy preaching about. He brushes all else aside and looks solely upon the Son of God. This what we too must do. We should keep the great miracle in sight regarding all else as chaff compared with the Son of God. We're well acquainted with the idea that God loves us. We've heard that before. Now, of course, it is terribly difficult for that thought, that truth to penetrate to the bottom of our hearts, right? But we know that thought, what we also must know is that God is not loving because he loves us. Okay, if that were the case, if God is loving because he loves us, there would be a time that God was not loving because we didn't exist. But rather, he loves us because forever the father has loved the son. Here we approach a great mystery, but here is the God whom Jesus gives us the deepest revelation of, the God who has forever been father. And if he has forever been father, then that means he has forever had the son and forever the Father has loved the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit. As we get a glimpse into the Son praying to his Father in John 17, some of these truths start to open up. We get a sight into the essence of all that is good and loving and true and beautiful in the universe, where Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The whole reason Christ came into the world is the nature and essence of our great triune God. It's because the father loved the son And gave all things into his hands. And it is the nature of love to overflow. And so, God didn't make us so he could love someone, but because he has forever been love, he created us to share the greatest thing in the universe he ever could, which is himself. This is why we say God is glorious. This is why, this is the reason for every good thing in life because God is an overflowing fountain. Do you get that? The reason food tastes good is because God is himself good and loving and all he creates is good and reflects an aspect of who he is. Christ is the one with all power He is the one who has brought salvation. And his call is a call to repent of your sins and a call to come into the life of the beloved. We have have all in our lives known the pain and the hardship of not being loved. We know if we're honest with ourselves there's probably some reasons we shouldn't be loved. But the call of Christ is turn away from everything else and come into a love that has existed before the foundations of the world. A love that is the reason for everything. This is the call of Christ. Lastly, We are to believe on Christ because this is an eternal life and death matter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3 ends with a dire warning if you're anything like me, the word wrath pops off the page of your Bible. And there's honestly no way to sugarcoat this passage. Neither does Jesus himself seem given to sugarcoating. You remember he ends his greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with a great warning. Practice these things if you don't your house is going to be built on a poor foundation. And when the wind and the waves come, great will be the fall of your life. And he ended. Because God's love is so great, and because his sacrifice is so unimaginable, how we respond is solemnly serious. There are two options. Either believe or disobey. Believe Jesus Christ died the death you deserve to die on the cross, taking the wrath of God upon himself, imputing to you his own righteousness, putting his robes of righteousness upon you, and eternal life is yours. Starting now or disobey. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't say whoever does not believe, but instead whoever does not obey. And so we we need to ask ourselves, then what does it mean to obey? I don't want to be one, I don't want you to be one who disobeys the Son of God. To obey, what we must obey is Jesus' call to repent and believe. Now before you start saying, I don't know if I have enough time to do enough good things to make up for all the mess I've made, That's not what this call is. It is not a call to merit your salvation. The true church has always preached that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we do not bring our works to God to be justified. If you don't believe me, hear this testimony from an 11th century pastor named Bernard of Clairvaux. Merit enough it is to know that merits are not enough. If you say, I couldn't ever do enough to make myself right with him, that's exactly what you need to come to him. The only thing you need is your need for him. What's the obedience you need it's an obedience that says, my obedience could never be enough. Or as the Apostle Paul says, the obedience of faith. To believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The savior of the world. God's wrath abides on all who have not obeyed the son. God's grace Mercy and eternal life are on all who believe him. People recoil at the mention of God's wrath, but here it is for us in Holy Scripture. And a God without wrath is not worthy, is not a worthy God, a God who does not hate evil, and who will not at the end of the day do justice, is not a God you can trust. God's wrath is not flippant. It is not like hours where you just set him over the edge, but it is wise and it is true and I think the most unsettling truth truly about all of this is that the greatest evil there is is to reject the son whom he sent to save us. People will tell us that we're narrow-minded to believe this, that we're insistent upon our own truth. But we must humbly prayerfully and boldly reply, this isn't our truth, this is God's truth. The warning is here to turn us from our wicked ways. The call and mercy of today is that we can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And Christ came into the world not to condemn the world. And so this truth must shape the tone and the tenor of our evangelism and our preaching. And still we cannot ignore or act ignorant of the warnings of Holy Scripture. To do so is truly unloving. Christ will never cast out any who come to him. But don't wait. The reason you are here is because God in his mercy wants you to hear the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. And so if you have not believed on him, believe on him today. And if you have Don't turn anywhere else. The same gospel you have been saved by is the gospel which you are continuing to be saved by. J.C. Ryle captures better than I ever could what we should take away from John chapter three. We can never make too much of Christ. Christ. We can never have too big of thoughts about Christ. Can never love him too much. Trust him too implicitly. Lay too much weight upon him and speak too highly in his praise. He is worthy of all the honor that we can give him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that he is our all. He is all in our hearts on earth. Church, Christ is above all. He has been to heaven and back. Christ has spoken the words of God to us. He has forgiven our sins. He is the beloved of the Father, given for us. His Spirit has been poured out upon us. How can we ever get over all of who He is? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that your approval, your joy, your presence would be enough for us. We thank you that you came into this world to save sinners. And God, we want to be your faithful witnesses. We want to worship you for all of who you are. So God, we thank you for bringing us into the life of the beloved. Thank you that you have loved us and lavished your grace upon us, that you have forgiven us according to the riches you have. So Lord, now as we turn to sing songs and to take communion, would we worship you for all of who you are? We don't ever wanna get over you. We wanna treasure you. So Lord, would you receive the praises of your people? Would we give you all that you deserve? Because you gave everything for us. Love you. Pray this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.